I'm Bianca Vivion, and this is Ask Viv. The most important prayer I've learned, close your eyes, outstretch your hands, guide me. My, 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 what a year it's been. What a four years that it's been. This episode marks our four year anniversary together. And maybe it feels so critical because the last two years have felt like a decade. And I think back to that time four years ago, sitting on the bed of that studio apartment with that youthful arrogance and that desire to have the answers. When I was younger, I just wanted to understand. I wanted to grasp things and with that knowing, make things malleable and mold things to the image of the world that was in my mind because I thought that that was the ideal world and a good world and a beautiful world. And I pursued knowledge, not just petty knowledge or trivia or curious facts, but things that could be used to affect and control. And I remember four years ago feeling so capable, feeling like I was just beginning to get wise about the way that things work, the world and the way things are. And if I could know and then interpret, then I could relay. And I wanted that responsibility so badly. I used to just say, let me guide you. I used to say the most urgent journey of every young person's life is to learn what love is and what love is not. And I used to think about what it meant to be righteous and compassionate and curious and what it meant to be vengeful and petty and jealous. And I wanted to know myself so that I could be above the influence of others. And looking back, that was all very noble, <laughs> that sort of haughtiness and high-mindedness. And even before the pandemic started, I was bent over and broken just by life shit. Slam doors in my face and career dealings and crooked management and loving men who were not who they claimed to be. And even before a plague, a biblical event descended upon the globe, I had already begun to have the hunch that maybe I wasn't as smart as I thought I was. But I would still just be pleading, God, let me guide them, give me a stage, platform, a place, a microphone, a soapbox, something. What I have to say is so important. I have the answers. That was the entire premise of the show when it began was that I held some real answers. And even when life brought me to my knees, I would come before you and humbly say, it's looking like I have more questions than answers. Just in the observant state that I've been in for the last two years that we've all endured, I'm only left with one singular question and it mars my mind and i know it's the question that you all have that anybody that's lived any amount of life really lived any amount of life has and it's why why and one interesting thing is that i'm reaching now the year anniversary of being in therapy and even after we began to dig through familial ties and family trees and all of the reasons down to what happened at the third birthday party and what went on in the backseat of the Jeep in the 10th grade. When we get past all of that, I'll find myself asking why. And I've over time begun to surmount questions that even when they're answered with 
calculative knowledge, even when I see the Freudian psychotherapy and map out the who's who and the what's what's of it. And I read the literature, our beloved bell hooks all about love and Eric Fromm, the art of loving and Baju on love. I've thought about the other and I've raced and rehearsed it a thousand times. I've read so many biographies and even gone deep into the mystics and the spiritualist. So much so that I don't think of love as this amorphous, incalculable, insurmountable idea, but something very concrete in my mind. But it doesn't explain why. Why good things happen to bad people why people leave without notice. That strange narrative arc of best friend to worst enemy. Why we believe that we are going to be the ones to lead the revolution and pursue righteousness and end up in the same boardrooms, making the same concessions. What actually ages us? What goes on in the microbiomes of our gut health? why and seeing the science just become more and more sophisticated with time to see them know virtually nothing about a virus and then suddenly have the entire genome mapped out to the point that they can replicate it in an mRNA vaccine and it still doesn't tell you why 1% of every person over 65 in the United States has perished. We have the what, we have the how, the responsible and irresponsible actors. They can even tell you how to feel, but they they can't say why. And why is such a painful question. It was the thing that this year broke my heart because I begun to try to calculate everything I had endured in my young life coming into 25 and just thinking of the hand that I had been dealt so many times, just crazy pains and griefs and goodbyes and frustrations and failures and heartaches and betrayals. And it wasn't because something terrible was happening to me. It was actually because so many good things began to happen and doors began to open and I was getting more yeses than noes. And I was suddenly trying to think of if it was truly equal. You see, what got me through so many of the low lows of my life is I thought that on the other side, there was going to be some equivalent gain for the things I had lost. Growing up in Baptist church, they loved the story of Job. The Christians used to tell me, oh, you get double for your trouble. They loved to say that. And it wasn't until I got older and thought about the story of Job that I realized that Job lost his children. Yeah, they burned his crops and destroyed his house, took his gold, bankrupt him, and maybe even marred his physical health, but they took his children. And then they said, you get double for your trouble, but the math just suddenly <laughs> wasn't adding up because I don't think you could lose a child and then go have twins and somehow it takes away the pain of losing a child. And so even when good things start to happen and beautiful things come your way and you fall in love and feel a sense of restoration in your own personal corner of life, even if the map of the world is raging and on fire, you can be soaking it all in and really trying to believe in it, but it didn't cure, it hasn't cured that question, why? 
And I think real wisdom was me finally realizing that intellectualism and intelligence, uncanny wit, knack, instinct, all of these human qualities are not going to fill this void of existential ignorance of why. Looking back now, being young like that, what I was doing, I, I was trying, like so many of us, trying to enter into the mind of God, because I thought if I could enter into the mind of God, then I could change it. Maybe if I could understand love, then I could cure the nightmare of going without it. Maybe if I could breach my father's psychological past, I could undo the harm that it did me. I could fix my mother's blunders. I could gain something that I felt deeply entitled to in the way of respect and attention. I could understand justice and why man wrongs man. And I could stop it. And then I could say, God, no, it's okay. You don't need to intervene with a plague. Don't bring a second flood. I could enter into the mind of God and I could change it. And that's what I would do if I knew why. But I lost so many nights and the potential for happiness evaded me even when I was winning everything coming up viv. And the more calculative I became, the angrier I was. And I found this peace to just trade my why for prayer and a resolution, a willful blindness to just say, guide me to close out the front page of the times, to turn my back on the current events and the ongoings and the numbers and the caseloads and the variants and the variables, no longer trying to force things to go my way or find apologies from people that owed me apologies. And I said, just guide me, just guide me. Life is so convoluted and complicated. And I've become too sophisticated, too complex, that even wide themes like love and consciousness, truth, anger, hatred, justice, folly, virtue, they evade me like never before. I realize how deep and wide it goes, how much we can live two completely contradictory and opposing narratives, how we can love and hate people at the same time wish them well and pray they stay far away at the same time, regret the decisions that made us and still love ourselves. We're not even two-faced, we're not even three-faced, we're four or five-faced at any given time. I never understood how a mother could love her children, love watching them grow and going to soccer games and simultaneously wishing that she was somewhere off in Barcelona with no children at all, loving on a stranger people in marriages, people that they love, and still thinking of all the other ways that it could have gone. Wondering on perfectly normal days if they made the right decision. I, I hadn't known even the slightest inquiry into this shit. You see how frustratingly complex it becomes. I think it's why people love large narrative themes. They love to ideate on big ideas. They love to talk neoliberalism, cancel culture, free speech, things that can be amplified and blown up like a parade balloon and then gawked at. You don't have to understand, just talk about them and muse on them and make people ponder or laugh. Think for a few moments and it, it ends up being enough. 
because if you get down into any of this, the real questions of life, the real experiences, what grief really is beyond the five steps, what addiction really is beyond the 12 steps, this dance, it's too much and you'll be overwhelmed calculating the wins and the losses and trying to make it add up and you'll be left with that why left so vengeful and afraid small and scared i remember coming to you and telling you what to do and how to fill your time how to take the edge off the isolation and continue pining for your dreams i said the world's not ending it's mending remember that now all I know is that I'm not going nowhere. I've got to end up somewhere doing something. And that I've learned some things about myself, seen the things that make me cold and the things that make me petty, the things that keep me longing and why sometimes I just want to be left alone. And I think that the beauty in that is that in some ways I've begun to get the answer to the question that I've most desired. I said, why? And I looked at the pain of the past and I thought the why would be a house or a car, a career calling, a podium. And I would see the reason behind all of the convoluted and fucked up things I've seen. I thought I'd find a husband and I would look back at all the lovers I ever had and he would be the why. Look at all the times that I came up short for change for the bus and I would sign that mortgage. I'd drive something off the lot and I'd say this was why all that happened because of this and I think for people that manifest people that close their eyes and one day they open their eyes and it was everything they thought it would be I think maybe that shit works for them but after just touching a little bit of that this year I realize I'm a bit too I'm too sophisticated too convoluted too fucked up too angry it's not gonna fix it. It's not gonna make it add up. And I'm not saying keep it because it's nice. I bought a bed big enough to love myself in. I have more designer in my closet than I did five years ago and it's nice. But my God isn't Santa Claus. And I don't think everything that I've seen and done and heard, it comes down to stuff. And I think at one time I wanted that to be the answer because what a simple answer that is. I think the rise of shows like Billions and Secession is our late stage capitalism society beginning to laugh at itself. How silly it is to think that just amassing goods, things would tell us the reasons why. No, it's only when I contemplate myself, the ways I've really grown up, ways that not even the closest person to me would notice or understand the changes in my values, the sharpening of my mind, the things I've learned which have no practical use in vocation or society, they're just for me. The patience I've learned in waiting so long for so much, frustration and the futility of some shit that's not coming ever, the things I've grieved that will never return, things that left that will never explain why they went in the first place, and I waited for years for the whys. But this is also the first year of my life that I began to see courage, bravery, honesty, and things that I thought were abstractions. As a child, I used to think, what does courage mean outside of a Disney movie and some grandiose life adventure? I thought it was just boldness. 
I thought patience was just when you knew something inevitably was coming and you just sat around, you just bided your time until you got what you always knew you were going to have. I thought that was patience. I thought health was putting yourself to bed at a decent hour and not drinking past your limits. But with this real time and investment, knowledge that I can't billboard in an essay or a podcast, I lose the language altogether. I don't know exactly what it is I learned, but I began to like myself in a way that was more honest than before to cherish myself in a way that doesn't feel like a cliche and hold on to me and trust myself even at the expense of a lot of trust and a lot of people that I leaned on to reassure this idea of me that I swore I needed. I used to tell God guide me but it was a joke because I in my mind knew where I was going and I used to tell myself that if he was going to take too long to get me there I would abandon him altogether and just take myself. I'd get into the mind of God and I would change it into the life that I desired because desire for young people is so important. I'm not so young anymore. Maybe I'm not even so American that I see this city upon the hill. I don't see this ideal system. I don't see a perfect theory or revolutionary thought. It's ironic seeing into the depth of the small depth of everything. It's made me simple. The things that I desire for myself, some real honesty, some real patience, to find real reconcilable differences between me and other people, to stand very simply side by side. I got 90s rainbow nation, brother sisterly coalition dreams for the world. I'm simple. I closed my eyes and I, I reached out my hand and I said, guide me, but I no longer mean to a place. I just mean guide me, move me around from day to day until I find the realish version of myself and let her be loving and let her be loved. Let me not take good people for granted until I'm grieving them. Let me not forget to call. Let me pay real attention to when people speak. Let me see the world for what it really is and live beyond it. Just guide me into me and that would be more than enough for this lifetime. And if there's anything admirable at all about living like that, it's that it takes real courage. And if you watch that and you find it interesting, worthy of repetition, maybe even just curious, strange enough to stay for the show, then perhaps that ethos might guide you, might move you somewhere to do something that you must do. Though I can no longer pretend to know what that is or what that looks like or why. Why I've come before you with this voice and this body and this mind, I don't know anymore. Don't ask me why bad things happen to good people or why evil prospers. Don't ask me if he gets the girl at the end of the movie. I'm too young, too overwhelmed with all that I cannot account for. Too intimidated by the possibilities and the variables before me. Too dumbfounded by the things behind me. I still don't understand why, but I'm still living and I'm still loving as sincerely and groundedly as possible. And for that, I am truly proud. I'm standing up for myself when I feel belittled. I'm letting myself feel angry when I'm pissed off. And I'm getting the first 
clear glimpses of who I really am. And I found none of these things with my eyes wide open, found none of these things on my good days, my bold and courageous days, my pretty days. It wasn't in the Ivy League. Sorry to say, it was not in any theory. It's not in the best of the feminist text. Even Morrison could have never taught me this. It's my eyes closed. It's my arm outstretched. It's a resolution and a thank you note and a prayer. And it said, guide me. It said, I'm so lost. Guide me. Been in my own way too long and I'm out of answers. Guide me. Guide me. Dear Viv, I'm a writer and I know I'm a good writer too, but I feel like no one is listening or reading my work and it's very discouraging. How do I sell myself as worth listening to because I'm struggling? I think if you want to be read or listened to as a writer, you're in the wrong profession. And it's not to say that it's not a lovely hobby and words are very fun to put together and it can be one of the more indulgent artistic practices. I love writing for that. See, the thing about painting is that you can truly commercially paint. If you learn how to paint landscapes, you can sell a million oil paintings to motels, to random IHOPs in Minnesota. You can paint simply because you want people to buy it and it's fun and sustain a good lifestyle off commercial painting. You can make music that's purely supposed to be played in elevators and hotel lobbies of shitty 70s Caribbean resorts. But writing is the one art form that it can only be done, and I mean really done well, if you have something to say. And I mean, you have to say it. Like if it sat inside you too long, it would kill you like a kidney stone. That's what writing really feels like. It's something that has to pass. If it's elation, if you don't get it down on paper, it might dissipate. If it's sadness, if you don't get it down on paper, it might completely destroy you. The people that really write have to write. And not only are they usually the ones that are most afraid of being read or seen or witnessed writing, they just have something to say. I think that the modern issue is that people, they mistook writing for authorship. People want to be authors because they think that that's a kind of personality type and there's a celebrity authorship. They want to be JK Rowling, Ernest Hemingway. They want to tell their story and people are so encouraged to do so. Everyone, tell your story, tell your story. We care about your story. I think that's something Bell Hooks taught us when she said, I came to theory because I was hurting. When I had my workshop last summer, it was one of the first thing I told my girls. I said, writing, it's not without purpose. I said, write your way out. And that's because, of course, they were all young, meaning that they were all raised in this generation of trauma writing. The personal narrative that's exalted, tell your story. I said, no, you gotta write your way out. You have to find a real resolution to the things that cage you. Things that feel insurmountable in the mind can be brought under control through language. And that's your job. And then when people read it, they should be able to feel that sense of release. Or if you're a creative writer, they should feel that caginess. They should feel that ecstasy. 
the reason why you all don't get Ask Viv bi-weekly is because I don't have something to say every two weeks. I don't have something to say every four weeks. I never tethered myself to any of this professionally. I never made it the thing that was going to pay my rent. This is not 1993, they don't pay $3 a word anymore. I was never going to have my life be beholden to a literary agent or an editor. I would have been miserable and I truly do admire people that can do that or who have the spousal support or the parental inheritance to be able to do art in that way, but that just wasn't me. I knew the only way I could say anything real or useful is if I said what I had to say when I had to say it and got off the pot. That's all I've ever done. I think that's all anyone who's ever really done this has done. In fact, most writers I know, when I think about the Baldwins and the Audre Lords, they wrote exactly when they had to write, if it was the midnight hour or the typewriter or meeting an inspiring group of others and deciding that there was a collective something to say. They just wrote it. And then when they weren't writing, they were reading, they were living, they were experiencing, and then they were writing some more. I write every single day in a journal and I've gotten more elegant about it over the years. I've chronicled in a way that if a biographer found it, it would be easy for them. But I just do it because I have to, because it's the way that I understand myself is through language. I had an ex-boyfriend, he was dyslexic. He understood himself through textures. I know people that understand themselves through sounds. It was a mystery to me when I was in college. My best friend Laura, she was able to study with music on. I mean, lyrical music, and it used to drive me crazy. I could never study with her if it wasn't in the library because I didn't understand how she did that. One day I just asked her, how can you think like this? And she looked at me with this very funny, quizzical stare, and she said, I don't think in words. It's not to say that writing is a completely selfish practice because I've written plenty of things to understand what other people were going through, to empower people, to make them more capable, to make things feel easier. And language for me was my gift to them because it's what I felt I had. That's the only reason I've ever let anybody read anything because I, I said, this is what I have. And the reason why I wouldn't publish my diaries is because I think that short of 20 volumes, 30 volumes of a full life, I don't know if it would be the, that much use for everyone to know what I ate for breakfast and the frustration I had at the DMV. We don't write to be read the same way we don't read as a gift to the author. We read because we need to, because we're curious, because there's something that we're trying to discover, something that we're trying to piece together, something that we didn't have because we are different before we enter the page. I've only ever written because I had to, and for years that profited me nothing. And the irony of it, the true irony is that the things that I've written that have been read by the most people are often the least meaningful things I write. Being read by tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of strangers, and then getting hundreds of messages of people hell-bent on misunderstanding you, it's not the kink that you think it is. And for everybody that aspires to be a writer, I won't downplay it. It's exhilarating and exciting. I'm sure for any filmmaker to fill a theater full of people, it's wonderful. For any artist, a dancer, a composer, it's exciting. For people to consume and gawk and watch and oogle and ah, it's nifty, I would say. It's like going to see the Eiffel Tower. It's one of those things that if you can do it in a lifetime, you should do it. 
It's mesmerizing and large, but it's not the reason why. You gotta find those hard corners that you're stuck in, those corners that you're placed in from the time that you're a kid, those oddities about the way that the world is and the way that you are and why you do weird things and make strange decisions. And then you gotta try. And it's purely an attempt because anything that deems itself a success is almost always a cliche. And you just write your way out. You attempt to write your way out of those corners. And if you find the good words, and you only find them by learning how to read, saying things like morose and melancholy and vicissitudinous, you map those words together and you attempt to write your way out, and I would be shocked, shocked floored, fun around if you just had nobody wanting to read it. For years I wrote to nobody. For years, I wrote just to figure out if that voice in my head was actually God or something else playing tricks on me. And then for years, I wrote to my childhood self just to see if she was still around and what she was thinking and doing and what she was afraid of. I hit my early 20s and started writing to my future self about what we were gonna do and what we were capable of. Then sometimes I just write just to see what language can do, just see how many words I know, how much I can just shoot straight from the hip with it, just hit the mark, find exactly what the hell is going on in the day. Sometimes I'm writing recipes, sometimes I'm writing eulogies, but that's just because that's what I do. I used to say I, I write because it's the only thing that's ever brought me home. I've moved around so much. I had seen more corners of this world by 16 than most people do in a whole lifetime. And it's not hyperbolic. I mean, really had seen so many things. And I wrote just to feel like I was standing in one place, just to feel a sense of singularity, just to see my name written down. So many college notebooks and childhood diaries are just filled with my name because I, I had no papers to sign. There was no contracts. There was nobody knocking on my door. If I didn't type my name or write my name, I wasn't gonna see it. I was writing to find some kind of control. That same friend Lauda that I just mentioned, she was also my neighbor in college. Years later, she told me that she would hear me when we were freshmen, reciting my spoken word poetry through the door over and over again, trying to memorize it. Nobody was calling me up asking me to perform it. Hell, nobody is now. <laughs> Oftentimes I get asked to speak and it'll be on shit I don't care at all about. Things that I have no expertise on, anything I'd say, it just just be musing, race relation, the youth vote, things that I go months and months without thinking at all about. Nobody's asking me to sing a love song. Nobody's asking me about my worst heartbreak or how I got over it. I made a podcast just so people would ask me questions. <laughs> just so that people would maybe venture into the corners of my mind that I found most interesting. So I get it. I get what it's like to just want someone to, to ask. We want people to prompt us, and then we want to go on book-long diatribes. When I was younger, I remember one of my first serious relationships begged this guy to write me a letter. I remember one birthday, he literally bought me an iPhone and I was pissed. <laughs> I said, just write me a letter, write me a letter. Finally, the first or second, I don't remember, first Christmas we spent together, I got this little note sheet that said whatever the hell it said, I can't even remember now, but I tossed aside the Louis Vuitton bag I got. <laughs> I just clung onto this little ripped up sheet of paper. 
I've always needed language. I've needed it so bad. And I used to throw myself in front of it like a damsel in distress on a railroad track in those old black and white cartoons. I used to just say, just tell me, say it, just say it. I say, just say it. I've had men that didn't care really a thing about me in retrospect. And I'd say, just say, just tell me you love me. Just, just say it. And I would stay. I've had so much wrong done to me, just deep wrong. And the minute that I heard those words, I'm sorry. I regret it, I'm remorseful. That was enough for me. Words are bars that I've clung to my whole life to get by. I fiend for them still, like nothing else. Hours going through the Quran, finishing with that, I'll double back through the Bible, I'll go to the Torah, the mystical texts give me the horoscopes, the whole shebang, cause I just need God to speak. I just say, say what's real. I just need language so badly. I remember a teacher of mine, an English teacher, she said, the secrets of the world and the keys to life were hidden in a book. You guys would never find it, lamenting our, our lack of readership. But she was wrong. I spent my whole life looking in pages, both the ones that I've written and the ones that I've read for something that resembled the truth. I bought four volumes of romantic poetry to understand one man <laughs> because I truly believed that the answers were there. If you've written something and you believe that it contains some real answers and people are looking for the most basic of questions, why did he leave? When will he be back? What did I do wrong? Will I get the job? Why did I lose the job? If you can speak to even the most basic of fears, what to expect when you're expecting. Think about the most famous books ever, the four agreements, the secret. <laughs> I mean, people are looking for answers to the silly shit, the obviously unanswerable things, but even if you muse on it for a little bit, you find yourself with an audience that's just the way it is. But if you want to be good, good writer, it's because you have to write because there's no other way out. I woke up just this morning curious about grief. I went and found three books on the bookshelf, got about 15 pages between all three of them, dropped that and opened my own diary. I write because I find myself on the page every single day since I could remember since I was small real small and tiny. My eyesight is shot from reading books in the dark as a seven-year-old. It's because I was looking for something. It is just a completely happenstance coincidence and it was wonderful. And I'm sure in some ways it was faded. Magic of life that I found out that there was other people looking too. Dear Viv, I grew up Christian and I'm thinking of converting. I've been really taking part in comedic spiritual practices, but fear is holding me back from leaving. I'm just scared my family will reject me, and I'm scared that my decision-making will lead me to eternal judgment. I think that the spiritual crossroads that we reach, if we're lucky enough to reach them at all, because so many don't, those are the most revealing of truly how little control we have in this life. My imam loves to say, faith is not a given, it's given. If we could 
happen upon faith through reading a book and having an aha moment, then everybody would do it. Nobody would be analyzing a birth chart or doing LSD in the middle of the redwood forest. It wouldn't be necessary if we just could know God and see God, read God and learn God and experiment, hypothesize, theorize, excavate. When everyone was done doing their thing on the side, everyone had their little money and completed their little bids, then they'd be ready. They'd say, okay, God, I'm ready to know you. And I think that's the problem with a lot of hyper-religious people. I remember in Baptist church, they used to have people come up and give their testimonies and they would talk about when they found God. No one finds God. One, because he's never hiding. It's just not his forte. God finds us. And if you're lucky, if he finds you at all, if he finds you through Islam, if he finds you through Christianity, if he finds you through Buddha or Yahweh, or if he just finds you whispering in the trees in the seashell before a vast ocean, what a beautiful thing it is. What a comforting thing it is to know God in the myriad of ways that he shows up for the faithful. And it's funny in, in Islam, we don't call people converts, we call them reverts. Because a tenet of Islam is that everyone is born with an understanding of the oneness of God. And it's the world that separates us from that oneness. And when we submit, because the Quran says, do not say you have faith, say you submit and pray that faith will be bestowed upon you. And so it's not so much, I think, a leaving. Sure, we show up to church and we'll pray or we'll go to mass or we'll do confession or we'll have our altars or whatever the daily routine of our lives concerning institutional faith that our parents had. But I could tell you, I got on my knees as a child and I don't think I ever once believed that Jesus was the son of God. It wasn't something I grasped and held on to. It wasn't something that brought me comfort even as a girl. It was just something that I did, something I was taught to do, something that gave my mom solace and it was her rock and she loved me and so it was what she gave to me. It was how she knew and understood God. But God came and got me and it looked so different. It's so different for every single person. And even the rituals that bind us, they won't intercede for us on the day of judgment when we stand before a merciful, as I've said so many times, a real merciful, almighty, creative figure. And we account for our own belief, our own faith. I think harder than finding which book you believe in, finding what feels like the truth because so many of them overlap. Even the Bhagavad Gita and the Quran and the Torah, completely different texts. They'll tell you about the importance of righteousness. They'll tell you that adultery is bad, that honesty is good. Every culture, faith or not, they have some heightened position for parents. Mothers are revered, fathers are respected. Speak in a low tone before your elders. I mean, you don't need religion to find these things out. I think the harder thing is learning not to worship at the shrine of our own opinions, learning not to exalt the voice in our head, learning the difference between desire and destiny, learning what is real, concrete, and tangible evil, and what is just a specter of fear that began when we were only children. Who is Satan versus the monsters under the bed? And that's what religion should give us. It should build a barrier between us and the world of whom and what shall I truly be afraid? 
How do I make peace with the fact that this life is so temporary? How do I have hope? How do I have faith or expectation when I can't account for those unknown unknowns? Faith is not so that you have something to say before the Thanksgiving meal. It's not so that you have a daycare service to take your kids on Sundays or sprinkle them with holy water. It's not so you can take them to teen night and someone explain the dangers of sexual intercourse so that you don't have to. It's, it's nice to have community. It's great to have a temple, a place of worship. It's wonderful to have someone that you know is praying for you, but none of those things get you by. It's so personal. Of all the terribly wrong things Americans believe are individual pursuits, the one that they believe is communal, which is religion, is actually the one that's most individualistic. It's most idiosyncratic. The God that you know is never going to be the God that I know, even if we're both Hindu, even if we're both Muslim. Some people learn God through grief. Other people learn God through enormous anxiety-inducing, crippling success. Some people learn God in the foxhole, other people on the mountaintop. It's so personal and so much of it is beyond our control. I had a friend that was born and raised Muslim. I mean, she was so devout, so studious when it came to the Quran, so knowledgeable, the recitation was beautiful. And I remember at some point, she started dating somebody that was really into the Yoruba religions of Yemaya and Shango, the Orishas, and dating this person and loving them and pursuing them. She began to pray with them and go through the rituals so much so that she sort of lost herself in it. I remember her being very pained by this time of not really knowing what she really believed. But she had to go through that because at some point she found herself back in Islam and it was necessary for her because it was this moment of reckoning where she said, now I know the truth for myself. And sometimes we have to go through a multitude of spiritual teachings. We have to read the books and do the practices and build the altars and some of those altars you get older and you find yourself tearing them down and some of the truths that you thought were rock solid you find yourself renouncing and it's all a part of the journey and we serve a merciful merciful god I'm truly merciful because lord knows I'm not even close to the perfect muslim I'm in pursuit of better every day lord knows but the beauty is being able to say I know for myself I've experienced for myself and the one thing that I've learned about revelation, about religion, the one undeniable fact I know about God is that God actually desires to be known. He's not hiding in the shadows. He doesn't need triple sevens on a license plate or a wheel inside a wheel. If you really want to know God, he'll pop up in the most average, ordinary, everyday instances of your life and the people around you and the ongoings. If you seek, you'll always find. If you need, he'll always answer. And that fact is so comforting. <laughs> that fact is so comforting. Dear Viv, I'm having a hard time with discernment lately and trusting my own intuition. I've tried spending time with myself, my loved ones, and putting energy into soul-enhancing activities like creating a work routine, practicing self-care, reading and writing. But as I do these things, I find myself more disconnected from myself and those around me. 
I'm not sure what the next step should be. Although I know you don't have all the answers, I would love if you could share some advice. That is the answer, is not having all the answers. I think that we are inundated constantly with this idea of self-knowledge and self-progression and that it should be unceasing that every single day you should find out something new about yourself, that you should be able to connect to yourself in a way that is very grand and very deep, and you should be able to complete a page of some grandstanding narrative about the quote-unquote self every single day. And it's just not realistic, and it's not even really healthy. I have learned, especially in the last year with therapy, that you should be able to just sit with yourself. There was so many days where I would have some grand question about romance or the meaning of happiness and life. I would put it at my therapist's feet and tell her, solve it. And it would bother me at first so deeply that she would just say, well, we really don't know. Let's explore where this comes from. And we would end our hour session and not be any closer to the answer. There are questions and there are eras of your life where you just have to live. You literally just have to live. And if you find yourself dissociated from the people around you, or feeling far away from yourself, it's going to happen. Would it shock you if I said, it's happening to me right now. The difference is that I'm not afraid of myself and I'm not panicked by my lack of self-knowledge. I am changing and I am young and there are going to be things that I don't know. There are going to be things that I don't know about relationships. There are going to be things that I don't know about myself. I found myself with this brain fog and this sort of lack of desire and a fatigue and a tiredness. And I was thinking to myself, wow, what's going on with me? I feel so crazy. And then suddenly I remembered that a month and a half ago, I started taking a new birth control and I was like, oh shit, this is probably a side effect of that. But it's just to say, we are going through so many things all at once, all the time. You would be remiss to think that you could be surviving a pandemic and going through the daily changes of life and then also going through youth, presuming that you're young and not feel overwhelmed or disconnected or weakened or frustrated with yourself. Should we put in an effort to be there for ourselves, to love ourselves, to try as best as we can to communicate with ourselves? Of course, but there are many days where even if I wrote in my diary, what I wrote was, I just don't know, or I'm lost. What I know is that those times didn't last forever. They didn't even last half of that. And they were eras of my life that when I look back on them, I was changing. I didn't know how because it was so subtle and it seemed like, oh, I was showing up to the gym, but I would show up with no energy. I wouldn't do much. I would walk on a treadmill for 30 minutes and leave. And I would beat myself up thinking, this is not real progression. This is not real change. And it was because it wasn't reflected in this extreme cocaine culture of hyperactive self-work. It seems like almost non-advice to tell you to chill to tell you to chill. People think that I spend all day reading Russian poetry and plotting my takeover of the world like I'm brain 
from Pinky and the Brain. But the reality is I spend a lot of my days watching Korean dramas. In fact, I've gotten pretty decent at basic conversational Korean over the last year because I spent a wealth of my free time doing that. And I mean many, many hours and many days watching Korean dramas. Yes, I could be learning recipes. Yes, I could be excavating the meaning of life from a book of Tolstoy poems, but that's just not where I'm at. It's just not where I'm at. And I want to be kind to myself. I want to be kind to myself and I want to have realistic expectations of myself because people were not kind to me growing up. I was not surrounded by a wealth of kindness. I was surrounded by nearly no no patience and I didn't know that I just had time. I was always when I was young living for this next step or this expectation that was being set often by myself but perpetuated in so many different avenues of my life by people that said this is what's next for me. Now that I'm older I realize that part of freedom is deciding what's next for myself. I don't feel and it is a wealth of privilege because it's ironic I don't have that culture of ambition surrounding me in the same way. It's not like I have professional parents or a culture that says I need to be married in the next three years. So in that, I'm able to decide for myself in many ways because I don't have those voices in the back of my head. But even still, you can be rid of them through chilling. <laughs> through chilling, through literally saying, fuck it, this is where I'm at right now. And maybe it requires getting off of Instagram for a bit. Maybe it requires completely dissociating when your parents say what they expect from you or what they think of your life, but you've got to chill. You have to indulge your own mindlessness. Could I be learning calligraphy and reading about Palestinian-Israeli relations? Maybe, but I'm not beholden to some idea of myself anymore. I don't, I don't want to be an idea of myself. I just want to be myself. I like indulging in beautiful things. I like looking at beautiful paintings and looking at flowers and reading beautiful poetry and watching really beautiful movies. But that's just because it makes me feel good. Some days I'm vain and stupid, and I mean that. <laughs> some days I'm silly and gossipy. Some days I am gluttonous and lazy. That's okay with me. That's okay with me because I've seen many people, many, many people who lived what they thought life should be like and they did it perfectly. They were the perfect son to their mother. They were the perfect coworker. They were the perfect husband. They were the perfect whatever. And secretly they felt trapped. And so they found themselves in their midnight hour when nobody was watching, stealing back the time to do what they really wanted to do or having to do it in secret. And it's how society creates deviance. People that have to do things in the dark, people that have to do things undercover, people who have to go into the janitor's closet and sleep at work because they don't don't know how to take their own rest. People who have to sneak into Marvel movies because they feel like they should be at some independent French film theater. And it's all very ridiculous and actually unnecessarily embarrassing 
to feel like you have to be somebody. People want to be the girl boss. People want to be the fitness influencer. They don't want to be caught eating cake or sitting down and watching TV. I want to be nice to myself all the time. In abundance, I am abundantly nice to myself. Am I without self-critique? Of course not. Part of this was healing years of severe perfectionism and self-consciousness and that like people around me growing up, I was quite mean to myself. I think that you've got to chill and you have to chill in a way that's actually good for you. I'm not saying to procrastinate or to harm yourself by completely foregoing your goals. That's not my MO at all. But you're saying I've done the reading, I'm spending time with my family, and yet I find myself fading from myself. Sometimes we find ourselves looking down a black hole and we're thinking that it is an endless well and we jump into it and find that it's actually a very shallow pool. The next time you find yourself falling back from your own life and feeling a bit distant and feeling removed, go along with it. I think that when we force ourselves into an idea of who we think we're supposed to be or where we ought to be or where life is going and we begin to say you're doing it wrong. If we don't do it wrong for a bit then we won't ever really have to look critically at what we think it means to do it right. We just won't. If you find yourself dissociated and rather than trying to read the four agreements or rush your way out of it, if you find yourself leaning into it you might find that you have a hidden pain or something really deep that's happening to you. And if you don't lean into it, you'll never know what that thing is. Or you might find you're just really tired of being on all the time because it's really fucking exhausting to be on all the time. It's really exhausting to be a daughter, sister, friend, parent all the time. Me? When I'm sitting around watching K-dramas or painting watercolor doodles, it's my way of giving back to myself for the 364 days I spend being everything to everybody. You've got to lose yourself a little every now and then. You have to go many days without the answers to very serious questions that you have. You have to. And we are so deeply impatient with ourselves and it's reflected in our impatience with others because we want instantaneous everything. We want instantaneous self-knowledge. We want instantaneous information. You have to sit with yourself. And when I say sit with yourself, I don't mean for one day. And I don't mean in some pseudo meditative state. I mean, you just have to live. You just have to live. I use this example a lot where people in the 40s would have a spouse that had gone off to war and they would await their letters for many, many days or a cousin that moved from California to New York and you had to wait for a letter to see what the news was or what they had to say. And this was days and weeks on end, sometimes months. And what do you think that people did in the interim of awaiting these letters is they just lived their lives. And there was no need panicking or feeling frantic about it because it was going to take some time. And the reality that things took time was something that people were so much more comfortable with a generation or two ago. And it's something that we have absolutely no time for, things that take time. Well, you're realizing right now that the thing that takes time, the thing that takes the most time to reveal itself is the self. It takes a long time and it can be grueling and frustrating and you can wait for the scale to tip every single day and you can wait for your mind to become 
this vision of genius and entrepreneurial prowess, or you can just chill. You can just chill. Gone through eras of my life that were nothing but hard pressing journeys of work, self-knowledge, grueling meetings every single day. I remember feeling like the marathon man. And those eras, they come and they go. And so in the interim, I'm not going to force myself into a pilgrimage. I let myself drift away. And I find that what we think is drifting, it's often just resting. And if you're like me, a lot of you had for a long time no clue what that was, to just rest. Nothing's going to burn down, nothing's going to elude you. The things that you have are so for you that you can't even lazy or procrastinate your way out of them, and I promise you that. Just rest. Dear Viv, I don't know how to pray. My family was Catholic and only prayed by reciting prayers that were flowery but not true to the spirit of counsel or communion or real spiritual thoughtfulness. I need help getting there. Any thoughts or guidance would be taken to heart. One practice that I learned very recently that has been very helpful to my prayer life and to my interior life in general, and this was at the council of my imam, my spiritual guide. He told me to go online and get a list of the emotions. And I mean like one of those very specific lists with like 200 words of all of the feelings. There's like depression, care, happiness, joy, shame. And then under each of the categories of general feelings, they have very specific like elated, crushed, ecstatic, frustrated. And the reason he advised me to do this is he said, you don't know how to feel. And this was, this was very recent, very, very shocking for me. He said, you don't know how to feel. And because you don't know how to feel, you don't know how to talk to God about the way that you feel. And being as self-aware as I am, I said, no, I know how I feel. He said, no, you think about feeling. You think about feeling, and the minute you think about what you're feeling, you talk yourself out of it. So you can know that you're angry, but instead of expressing anger, you immediately mediate your anger, and therefore you repress it. And God can't do anything with your thoughts, because his thoughts are so far above your thoughts and so much more expansive than anything that you could think. But God deals with feelings. There's no need to go try to have an intellectual conversation with God. We're always, as I said, trying to bargain with God. We want a Santa Claus God. You come to God the way that you do Don Corleone. And you say, God, this is what I'm thinking. This is the plan that I have. And that's not really prayer. That's not communing with God. But once you find this list of feelings, and you can choose multiple feelings on the list, and it might not happen right at first. It took me a few times. I remember seeing the word tired and it coexisting with the word brokenhearted. And it was just writing down both of those and highlighting both of those at the same time. And I broke down in tears and I came before God and I said, God, I feel tired and brokenhearted. And God can do something with that. He can do something with that. And, ha and I realized that it's really about feeling. And I think that the nice thing about prayer and when it really works the best is when I come before God with those feelings before I take them anywhere else. Because I remember I would call up my homegirl first or I would call up my mom first, or I call up my sister, and I would feel so deflated by the lack of understanding or the lack of solution for my problem that by the time I got to God, it was a very lazy sort of plea 
and just kind of like throwing my hands up and saying, fix it if you want to. I've begun to begin my troubles with prayer. It's my first solution before Google, before I go into some, I mean, I found out that I had COVID three weeks ago when every single person in New York was getting COVID. And I started to suspect it before I even went to the urgent care to check, before I even looked up the symptoms, I prayed. And I said, God, I feel sick. I feel this tingly sensation in my throat. And I think, I think that I might be in real trouble here. But you're the God who is the solution to all and any trouble. If we don't know God, then we have to start with what we do know which is a knowledge of ourself. And that's where feelings come in. But we come before a knowable self and through recitation and study, we begin to understand a God who desires to be known. And prayer is the amalgamation of both of these things where we say, this is how I feel. And this is what I know about my situation. I feel trapped. I feel broken. I feel angry. I feel vengeful. And we come with those feelings and then we talk about who he is and that is worship and we say i feel vengeful but you are merciful i feel brokenhearted but you are healing and that sort of holistic process and it gets deeper and it gets easier that's prayer that's prayer and it really does get easier it's one of those things that it can feel silly and you can kind of feel like okay well all i know is now i lay me down to sleep i pray the lord my soul to keep and it feels like a last resort to some of the more difficult troubles and questions that we have about life but over time it's become my first resort it's become my first resort and i think alluding to the previous question it's why i'm able to chill all the time i come with these grandiose problems thinking that they're so insurmountable and unsolvable and i come with these convoluted feelings that i feel sometimes like i can't even tack down but then i come before god that's so much bigger and smarter and better than the problems that I have and I truly do walk away feeling a sense of peace and a sense of relief like I've laid something down and even though that there's this urge to sort of get back to whatever you have to do in the day or to go to sleep or wherever your prayer takes place and time and space but I really implore you to not get up until you feel that sense of relief. For me, there's something about going to my prayer rug with that weightedness and that heaviness. And I don't get up until I feel it leave. Even if it's something very simple, like I pray before I leave the house and I say, God, protect me, protect me from myself, protect me from the world. I'm going out into the world now. You know what's out there, be with me. And rather than feeling that fear of whatever can happen around the corner, I wait until I truly feel, okay, now I feel safe and then I'll walk out now I feel safe now I feel like I have an understanding that no matter what happens on the other side of that door I'm going to be okay and that kind of internal patience and that kind of humility that's really where prayer begins but it really begins with our feelings it really begins with our feelings and it's very very difficult when we are raised by or surrounded by spiritual institutions that teach us to forego repress or ignore our feelings we serve a 
God that deals with our feelings. And this is something that you know because in the Bible it says God is touched by the feeling of our infirmities. And in the Quran, I love the story of the prophet Miriam before she has baby Jesus and it talks about many labor pains that she had. And it's something I never knew about until I reverted that she was really pissed. <laughs> While she was pregnant, she was clinging to an olive tree and she was saying, God, this is so painful. And there are so many moments of man's weakness throughout the Quran, throughout the Bible, throughout the Torah, the Bhagavad Gita, any spiritual text, people trying to come to terms with the weight of living. Every single day, living just presents a weight, a different new weight, pretty much every single day. And prayer is where we put it down. It should be the place where you put it down. And if you really observe yourself, you're going to find that you've put it down a few other places. You're going to think of your confidant or the person that you gossip with or the internet. You're going to think of all of the different places, the bar, the diary. We place ourselves, the heaviness of ourselves. And it's merely that first decision to create a prayerful life is deciding, no, I'm, I'm placing this before God first. You want to hone your instinct, prayer is the best place. Because if you put it before God, you'll be pointed in the right direction so quickly that once you go to other people, you'll be like, okay, this was an answer that was sent by God. I'll often find myself praying for an answer and then an hour later my phone rings and then someone will literally tell me the answer that I was looking for or I'll find the article and be like, oh my God, Alhamdulillah, oh my God, this is what I was looking for. Prayer sets us in the right direction. All you need to begin praying, your feelings, a recognition of who God is, and an amen. God, I feel this, but I know that you're this. Amen. And amen, it's let it be done. Let it be done. That's when you know that the weight is off. When you say amen, there's not a limit to it. I've come to God seven times in the same day. God, I have zero dollars in my bank account, but I know that you're a provider. Let it be done. God, I'm feeling terribly ill, but I know that you're a healer, so let it be done. That is prayer. That is prayer. That's all the time that we have for today. I know you're lost. I'm lost too. It's okay. It's okay. Some of you may be familiar with the famous Zora Neale Hurston quote, some years ask questions and some years give answers. And on January 1st of this year, I prayed, I said, God, let it be answers. Let it be a year of answers. 21 asked so many questions. There were so many questions. I remained with so many questions. I said, let it be a year of answers and let them be good. I mean, I think that we're all holding out quite a bit. I'm reminded of that old song, waiting on the world to change. And I think that a lot of us are quite literally waiting on the world to change. And that's the global economic system the COVID situation. And we're waiting for answers in our own lives, waiting to figure out how others feel about us, waiting to see who or what we become, waiting to see the changes revealed for the work that we've done for so long, or maybe that we're just beginning. And it's a heaviness in feeling lost. There's a real pain and confusion that I feel is really understated. And I think that that feelings chart helped me so much because I found myself whenever I would say confused, 
I would also feel hurt. And they don't tell you that confusion is a kind of pain. They say ignorance is bliss, knowledge is many things, but confusion is painful because it's fear inducing and anxiety inducing. And we feel that we have no other choice but to indulge, indulge in the panic of the time. And we'll wash our hands 10,000 times a day and listen to the radio for the latest conspiracy theories and try to figure out what's what and who's who and what's next. Let it be if after this podcast, you go back to your frustrations and guessing at what comes next. I won't, I won't be mad at you. I won't even judge you, but just immediately after to honor the wealth of this time that we've spent together, just chill, just chill. And if you find yourself panicking and running around and pleading, asking why, asking how, asking when, hold on to these words and know that I'm holding on to them too. And if people have told you it'll be okay and you felt like they just didn't understand, like they hadn't been there, felt like, what do you know about my kind of pain? What do you know about losing a loved one? What do you know about losing a job? What do you know about literally losing your mind? And it felt offensive and cruel for them to say to you, it'll be okay. Well, I have been there and it will be okay. It will be okay. There is still so much living to be done this year and in many years to come, whether we see them or not, there is life to be had and joy to be felt. And it won't always be this way. Sometimes I think about the kids that showed up those random mornings in the middle of the school year when I was in elementary school in Atlanta who were refugees from Hurricane Katrina who barely had backpacks or clothes uprooted from their lives in Louisiana and Texas that just somehow ended up sitting right next to us expecting to be writing in cursive or learning times tables. And even as a child, I felt it so acutely. I think they're not okay. And I would look at the TV and the telethons, seeing people trying to rebuild their cities, seeing people try to trudge forward. And I would wonder even then, how do you make it to tomorrow? And now it's been so long since then. I didn't know how much internal resilience there is. But what evaded me even more was this idea that there, that there will never be a permanent state of happiness. I've lived in so many hard corners. I found myself between a rock and a hard place so many times in life you wouldn't believe. And people would say, it'll be okay. And I thought, bullshit. I say, if it's going to be so okay, then just point me into the direction of okay and I'll start walking. That's where I'll go. And now I'm okay. Sitting here recording this with you, I'm really okay. And so many times in the last four years of this show, that was not the case. You wouldn't have even guessed how many times I found myself in a place that was so not okay. Found myself in a loveless relationship or broke as hell or combating some inner childhood turmoil that reared its ugly head at the worst moment possible. And I wasn't okay. And I needed someone to guide me, someone to give more than they took, someone to hold my hand and not as a passing thought or fleeting moment, but really sit with me and just say, it's going to be okay. And I don't know if I would have believed them and I don't know if I would have embraced them. And I don't know if you believe me now, 
But I knew, do know that I would have found myself later in a time such as now, thinking back on that person or maybe having forgotten them altogether and in a passing thought would have said, wow, I am okay. I am okay. I hope that you're okay. I hope that in the time since we've last spoke that you're doing all right, but I feel fortunate if I found you in the middle of a crisis or a hard ass time in a moment of lack or brokenness, or maybe like so many of us, you're so many things at once, feeling overwhelmed by the reality of yourself and who you've come to be. Well, then I'm even more glad to have you here with me today because how much easier is it to face these trials together? I remember there are so many days that I felt crazy with the questions that marred my mind. And then I'd have dinner with a friend. And even in those small moments, it'd feel like maybe it'd be okay if I never know why. And I think that the isolation is the hardest thing because we try to make a friend of our own mind, try to convince us that the deeper that we go into it, the more that we swim into it, the more it'll give us back. But the mind is not like that. In fact, the mind is, <laughs> often an enemy more than it's a friend. It'll help us get up, it'll help us cook dinner, it'll help us do the job and move along, but in our private hours, sometimes it tries to kill us, quite literally, or just back us into a corner of unending anxiety and doubt. And I took for granted what it would mean to just be the voice, be the hand that takes people out of their own mind for a little bit. Even just a little while ago, I told my sister, I said, four years, and I can't believe people are still listening to this podcast. I can't believe they haven't yet tired of my voice, of which I grow so tired of daily. And I laughed it off. And she looked me very seriously in the eyes and she said, well, people, people need somebody. And people are looking for wisdom and people have questions. And if they find somebody who might answer those questions and might feel them, then they're gonna hold on to that. And I guess sometimes I'm stupefied. I'm stupefied and flabbergasted and left without to think that you all might think that that's me. But then I think back to four years ago when I started this show, 2017, in that little studio apartment, and I thought to myself, at the time, I need somebody. And it was always you. And it's for this reason knowing that I have something to say and that will probably always require a listener and you have questions, that mutual need and that mutual respect and that deep, deep, deep kind of love, that's how I know we'll be okay. I hope you're taking it easy. And if you're not, I hope you're taking it as easy as you can. And in the meantime of all the striving to be okay, and all of the ambition to be more than okay, and the world that's moving and shaking, doing too much, trying to, some days it seems like swallow us whole, the rising prices, the diminishing returns on the sacrifices that we make, both for ourselves and for one another, and the hurt that accumulates in that question, why? I hope that for this hour and odd minutes, you might be able to just lay down the why and for a moment amongst all of these moments, be perfectly okay. I thank you so sincerely, so deeply 
for this last four years together. I feel lost and I'm unsure, God, of what the next four will bring. But you're omnipresent and so loving that I trust you'll guide me, that you'll guide me and those under the sound of my voice who I love the most. And I know that we'll achieve ourselves and find some real love and some real courage. And we'll see ourselves in a moment far from now, truly okay. Let it be done. I mean, I hope you're taking it easy. And if you're not, I hope you're taking it as easy as you can. I wish you more light, more life, more love. I'm Bianca Vivion. And if you ever need anything at all, you can always ask Viv. At five in the morning, I wake up to five for my yearnings. Fear in my mind is a warning. Pray to the one you're relying. I've been wandering all day. I tried to be fine, but I can't be. The noise in my mind wouldn't leave me. I tried to get by, but I'm burning. I need to find relief, but behind my mind.